It's been a good day. Thanks be to God for the gathering of his saints and for the means of grace by which he draws us near to himself. Um, we want to turn to the Bible this morning and uh, pray and trust that God would use it to address the issues of our own hearts as he directs us to uh, his own self. So would you join me this morning in the book of 1 John chapter 3. By way of introduction, I just want to read the verses uh, that we, we discussed last Sunday morning, and then we will uh, read our text for this morning, beginning in verse number 10 of 1 John chapter 3. Um, John is, is very clear that he is um, presenting to his readers, presenting to us uh, the evidence in the life of the saint or the children of God that they have or that we have truly been set apart to God from the world and that there is a distinction between those who are of this world and those who are of God. So he begins by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Here's the evidence, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Second, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He expands upon this in verse number 11. When he says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That message is the message of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, he murdered him because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, we know that we have passed out of death into life because, and this is the evidence, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now this is our text this morning in verse number 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. Our dear Heavenly Father, we rely 
wholly and entirely upon the truth of your word as it is illumined by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And we trust, Lord, that you would take your word, that you would apply it to our hearts, Lord, as we address those issues and those matters of body life, of the life of the body of Christ. May it take root in our hearts, Lord, this familiar passage of Scripture, this familiar command to love one another. Help us, Lord, by your grace to examine our own hearts as we explore, as we unwrap these verses to understand the fullness of what it means to truly lay down our lives for one another. May it be a practice that is um, carried out as a life change because we have been changed and because we belong to you. Father, there, there may be, or most probably is, a, 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 at least one, if not several, here this morning who have never come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that in your kindness and in your mercy and in your grace, that same kindness and mercy that was extended to us, that you would minister into their hearts and you take your word and apply it to their hearts and their lives and that you would show them Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as you show them Jesus, that they would turn to him in faith for eternal life. This is your work that you, you accomplish through your word and the ministry of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of John's chief's, chief aims or emphasis that we find in this letter is to call attention to the things that the believer knows in order to exhort us to a correlating behavior. And if you read through the, the entire letter, you would find that beginning in chapter 2 all the way to the end of the chapter, that is a common, a, a, a an ongoing emphasis that he makes. He uses the term, we know, or you know, over and over again. In this chapter alone, as it applies to the things that we know, and the correlating response, in verse number two, he says, we know that he appears, we shall be like him. Verse number five, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Verse number 15, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse number 16, this we know love. Verse 19, and this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 24, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You'll find that same emphasis in all but the first chapter of this letter. Something tells us that he wants us to know what is truth. As a matter of fact, the emphasis is, this is what you do know if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand this type of reasoning with our own children, right? I mean, it's not something that, it's not a foreign concept to us. This, the, we, when we think of our, our children and sometimes when they, they behave or they do, they have an act, action that that is 
out of character. Our, our common comment to them is, why would you do that? You know better, right? We know better. This past week, we had dinner with a, with a, with a couple of sweet couples, but, but in this is the, 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 whole, the, the couple that was hosting us in their home uh, served up our, our dishes uh, before we sat down, and for some reason, they, 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 he thought that I ate a lot. He was right, but I don't know where he came up with that. And that plate was so full, but I never ever blinked an eye at it. I thought, that looks good to me, and I ate this pasta, and, and it was, I was pleasantly filled. It was wonderful. And then they said, there's dessert, and they brought this pour, pot of cream, however you say that in French, this, this fudge in a glass, and I, I was full, I was content, and in my head I thought, that looks absolutely wonderful. But you know how you're gonna feel afterwards. So with all the discipline I had, I, I ate it. <laughs> and, and what I knew was right. But the whole idea there is that I know, and what I know should really dictate my behavior. Not always do, but that's kind of the idea that John has here. He is constantly reminding us of what God has revealed in our own hearts by the ministry of his spirit. John's assertion is that the Christian knows the truth not by deductive reasoning or by intellectual assent, but rather by the divine revelation of God's Spirit. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. John writes this, you, speaking of the believers, you have been anointed. The King James says, you have an unction from above. It is by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. That is, your eyes have been illumined to know the truth, the truth of God's Word. So that as you read the word of God, many of you would, would identify with this. I, I identify with it. I knew the word of God because I grew up in a Christian home. I understand it. I memorized large chunks of it as a young child. As a young teenager, I would often share it with others. I knew the bulk of, I knew a large, large chunk of the other word of God. But it wasn't until God's illuminating spirit worked in my heart to open my eyes to see the word of God as it really is, to see it in truth. That's what Paul wrote to the, Thess the believers in Thessalonica. He said, I thank my God that when you received our word, you did not receive it as the word of man, but as, the, as it really is, as the word of God. That is the work of the Spirit of God. That did not come about by my, my own intellect or by my deductive reasoning. This is God's work. And so John is driving home this fact that God has awakened your heart, has given you life, and you know what is truth, and you continue to grow and to mature in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as God sanctifies you through the process of life. And so the Bible calls upon the believer that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It is based not only on what is true, 
but it is based upon what has been affirmed in our hearts by the Holy One. So his call to us as brothers and sisters in Christ is to love our brothers. And, and, and I, please know up front, I know it's not culturally acceptable, but I use that brothers, in, and I think I, I know the scripture is using it in a generic sense, to, to mankind. So if I don't say brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be offended, but hear what the truth of the word says. But we, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know the truth of who God is. We know the truth of God's love for us. We know the truth of the love that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And that is why we have the text. That is what we have in the text before us, beginning in verse number 16. Jesus laid down his life for us. I want to look at this, these three verses, each verse with its own point. This first point is uh, we know love. Those are the first three words of the verse. By this, we know love. He brings to mind immediately, how do we know what love is? Well, we know it because of what Jesus did, his demonstration of God's love. The Bible's account of Jesus laying down his life for us is recorded in, in the Gospels. It's spoken of throughout the epistles, but in the Gospels it is recorded for us his life of righteousness, his teaching, his authority by which he spoke as he spoke the words of his Father who sent him, and his laying, his willing laying down of his life for our, our sake, the resurrection we read of those things in the gospel, and this is the demonstration of God's love. But it was also foretold, foretold by the Old Testament prophets, and it was actually promised by God himself in the Garden of Eden when he speaks of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. However, Jesus' death on the cross was, was the manifest expression of God's love in time and space. It was, that was God's demonstration of his love toward us coming into time and space where we are able to witness what that look, looks like. But the whole weight of this statement that John makes that Jesus laid down his life for us cannot actually be comprehended in Jesus' crucifixion alone. It is seen in his crucifixion, but God's love is manifested even beyond the actual act of his death on our behalf. God's love for his people stems from the very essence of who he is in his nature, in his character, of, of, of who God is, it, it, our, his love for us is, is grounded or grounded in his very existence. And it is expressed in terms in the scripture, in, term, in eternal terms. For example, 
in, in Psalm chapter 139, that entire chapter that speaks of the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. That omniscience meaning that God knows all things and that he is omnipresent, that he is present uh, at every place at every time. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, multiple accounts of God's omniscience and omnipresence. But listen to what he says. It says, beginning in verse number 13, he says to the Lord, you have formed me, or you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. One of the key verses that, that drives home the sanctity of life and why we are so against the murder of babies in the womb. Because they are in the image of God. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. And to make our point, we continue on. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. Can I, can I read that again? It's, it's astounding. I'd like to see that book. Or maybe I don't want to see it. He says, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Let me reword that. How precious are your thoughts toward me, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. The Apostle Paul explains that God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us before the foundation of the world. So, so if you have been, if you are here this morning, and you, if you have been, by God's grace, brought to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, you can know with certainty that you are saved today because in love, God predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It was not a mistake. It was not a lucky choice that you made to follow after him. God placed his love upon you before you were even created. It is a fixed reality established in eternity so that when man was created, God loved you. When you were born in Adam, dead in your trespasses and sins, God loved you. When your innate sin was fleshed out in your behavior, God loved you. When you were hostile toward him, God loved you. Elizabeth's testimony this morning, what continues to astound her, 
is that even though she continues to fail and to fall short each day in her sin, God continues to love her, is the testimony of every single one of us who know Jesus as our Savior. He loves us not because of our performance. He loves us in spite of our performance. He loves us because he is love. While you were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, unlike you and me, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The manifestation of God's love is on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love, this love God has for you is manifested in time and space when Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, of his own volition, emptied himself according to the decrees of the Father who desired to have a people for himself, we see the, the, the eternal Godhead in God the Father who desires to have a people for himself and God the Son who takes on human flesh. God who is God takes on human flesh and the Holy Spirit who applies what he has accomplished. But Jesus, in the form of God, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. He did this for your sake. Your redemption, understand this, your redemption manifests his glorious attributes and essence so that all of creation will stand in awe and glorify him for all eternity. So in, in, in eternity, all of creation will look to you and they will be in awe that God loved you enough to save you. Kind of a thing of, really, him? That's a lot of love. So that, that's the whole idea there, that, that, that he has loved you. But understand this, that your redemption did not add any glory, worth, or value to God that he did not already have. Your redemption was not for his benefit. Christ's love for you that prompted him to lay his life down is the supreme example of selfless love. And so John says, by this we all know, I'm sorry, John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the first point in verse number 16 is we know love. The, the second point is we have love. Verse 17 reads, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? John's rhetorical question there at the end, how does God, God's love abide in him, actually emphasizes the incongruity of life when a Christian closes his heart against his brother in need. Now, I, I don't think, uh, and there are, there, are, there are some who disagree with me, so I'm, I'm telling you, this is my opinion of what I, I'm reading it. You read it and, and you, you understand it for yourself, but this is what I think. I don't think that John is stating it to be an impossibility that a Christian would do such a thing to shut his heart against another brother, but I do think that he is contending that a Christian who lives in such a way is living in a way that is inconsistent with who he claims to be. And if it becomes a lifestyle for all brothers, then it may be an indication that the love of God does not truly abide in him. As he has exhorted us in the previous chapter, he here is instructing us to abide in Christ so that God's love might abide in us, or, or rather that the reality of God's love might permeate our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I think when Paul prays for the saints in the book of in the city of Ephesus in the third chapter, uh, the second of his of his great prayers is that he prays that the the saints would they would be strengthened to be able to understand and to comprehend the depth and the breadth and the and the width of the of the love that God has for us. To what end? So that we might grow and mature in Him, but so also we might be able to love one another. We read this morning. Or Isaac read this morning. Oh, in a, in a book of in our previous hour, uh, that if a brother says, if someone says that uh, that he loves God but he hates a brother, he's a liar. How can you love someone who have, whom you have not seen and yet hate someone whom you have seen altogether. So with that, please consider four principles, and, and we'll end with these four, four principles this morning, four principles of brotherly, brotherly love that we get from, from these two verses. First of all, we've already touched on this, um, the, the saint is motivated to love others through a fixed gaze upon Christ. How, how do you fix your, your loving heart for your brothers? Fix your eyes on Christ. That, that's one of the things, one of the purposes of us doing what we do as we gather together. We, we want our eyes to be fixed on Christ. We have baptism. I mean, Isaac explained that we have baptism and it causes us to fix our eyes on Christ. We have the Lord's Supper, it causes us to fix our eyes on Christ. We sing. We don't sing songs for entertainment, although it is entertaining. We sing it because it points us to Christ. We read the scriptures because it points us to Christ. We pray because it points us to Christ. We preach from the word of God because it points us to Christ. We want our eyes fixed on Christ, not on me, not on one another, but on Christ. So uh, we, we are... We are are, are taught and we are instructed and we are motivated as our eyes are fixed on Christ to love one another. Jesus told that parable in Matthew chapter 18 about the servant who was forgiven a debt that would have cost him, his, him and his family uh, a lifetime of servitude. That this servant uh, was forgiven of that debt entirely and that servant turned around 
and beat and imprisoned another servant who was indebted for but a small amount. He had failed to make the correlation between the mercy and kindness extended to him and the mercy and kindness he was to extend to others. <coughs> so to close, to cl close your heart against one who is in need is to forget the love that Christ has and continues to extend toward you. So fix your eyes upon Christ. See yourself in light of the redemption purchased for you in spite of your debt. Rehearse the gospel in your heart as you read the word of God. Consider, as we partake of the Lord's Supper each week, Christ Jesus allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed on your behalf, an undeserving sinner. Consider as you observe the believer's baptism that Christ died and rose again and that in Christ you have died with them to the old man and have been raised to walk in newness of life. Your practice of love for the saints is to be motivated by the gratitude for the love that has been extended to you. The second principle of brotherly love is that the saint is to live with a biblical understanding of stewardship. You might say, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the very opening statement. If a brother has need, uh, if, a, if, a, if a brother, ha brother has, has, a, has uh, the world's good, what does that mean? It means you have the world's goods. You have the means by which to meet the need of another. And there is an understanding of a biblical stewardship here. What is that biblical stewardship? That nothing you have belongs to you. You may think in the back of your head, well, I work 60 to 80 hours a week, so everything I have, I earned. No. Bible, God told, told the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is God who gives you power to get wealth. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5 that, that the ability to uh, gain, gain wealth and possessions, that is a gift of God. Biblical stewardship begins with the understanding and the conviction that nothing you own belongs to you. All that you possess in the material world has been given you by God, by God and by his grace. And the best way for you to enjoy it, the best way to you, for you to enjoy the, this worldly goods is to release your hold upon your stuff. So that when God gives you opportunity to bless another, you can do it with joy. And, and by the way, biblical stewardship applies to every person, every brother in Christ, every sister in Christ, no matter your socioeconomic class. Even in poverty, you have something to give to someone else. If nothing else, your prayers. Some of the greatest blessings I have are some of our senior saints who feel like they are useless. That's their words, not mine. They feel useless. What good am I? All I can do is pray. I can tell you what, I'll take that over anything else. So that is a biblical understanding of stewardship, that God has given me the ability to serve others. Paul account of the Gentile churches in Macedonia giving to, the meet, giving to meet the needs of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem is astounding in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. If you want to understand biblical stewardship, especially with your finances, especially in the area of giving, 
to the Lord. That's not an advertising or, or a, a clump, clump on the head for you to give. But if you want to understand biblical, biblical stewardship, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let me just read you the opening verses of chapter 8. We want you to know, Paul is writing to the, the church in Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then they gave beyond their means of their own accord. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking, that word favor is grace, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. There's a biblical stewardship. Paul really concludes that chapter by saying this, but as you excel, writing to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, as you excel in faith, as you excel in speech, in knowledge, and in earnestness, and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is this act of grace? Biblical stewardship. The saint is to live in community with, with other saints. That's the third principle. The saint is to live in community with other saints. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, seeing a brother in need implies proximity. Now, there are many and various opportunities to meet the needs of people we've never met, and, and, and this is a blessing. We, we just read about the Macedonians giving to saints they had never met in, in another country altogether, but in a sense, sometimes, and, and I emphasize sometimes, sometimes it is easier to just write a check or to give anonymously than it is to be personally involved. Remember that commercial by Sarah McLaughlin who was saying that sad song so you can support cats and animals, the SPCA I think had it on. And there is a lot of money, why? Because it's easy to write a check. Don't get me wrong. I, we appreciate, I, I, pre, I think it's a wonderful thing that God gives you opportunity to be able to provide for the needs of those that you don't know. But one, one commentary wrote this, uh, one commentator wrote this, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Now, you and I know that this is a blanket statement that cannot and really should not um, be, a, be used in every circumstance. But, but it does address an important truth, and that is this, that helping others with whom we are acquainted can sometimes be messy, frustrating, and seemingly unrewarding. But with that, I have to say, welcome to the church. We are made up of flawed men and women who are called to love, whom we are called, we are called to, to love one another. And we are called by God to love all the brothers and sisters. Many, many, if not most, 
in the local body are somewhat likable in our congregation. So I'm speaking very personally here. Most of you are somewhat likable and we can get along just fine. Most are easy to love. Some are easy to like. But in a big way, the sense of lovability is because of personality or socioeconomic position in life. In other words, the things that we need are generally not too demanding, so you're easy to love. But then there are the others. And I can honestly say, honestly, honestly, because I sat and thought about it because I wanted to be careful. I can't think of any of the others. But maybe you might. There are others in the body of Christ that don't quite fit it, fit in. They, they, their, their needs are, you know, needy. It's messy. It's complicated. And the need can't be met in one fell sweep. I mean, you can't just write a check for someone and it be over. There's going to be more. You know it's going to be more. Or... Or the need can, can seem to be out of our comfort zone. It's not always about money. It might be about other things. Or the need might be um, self-afflicted. And so we deem it to be undeserving of our help, as though we have the authority to deem what is deserved. Uh, uh, or the need might be reoccurring. Or the need may seem to be entitled or ungrateful. These types of people just makes loving one another so difficult. These types of people makes helping others so unsatisfying. But isn't that just the point? Isn't that the point? We are called to love one another not because it is easy, and not because it is fun, and not because it is rewarding. We're called to love one another because it's right. It is right. And if you want to put, put a, 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 a spiritual feeling to it, it is righteous. If you notice, John mixes the two in verse number 10 we read. We can discern. Here's the evidence of those who belong to God and those who belong to the devil. Those who, um, those who practice righteousness and those who love. They go hand in hand. You love because it is right. And here's what will happen. When we, by God's grace, learn to act in faithful obedience to love the unlovable, messy brothers in Christ, it is then that you will learn to truly love the lovable brothers as well. Second of all, when conflict arise between you and a lovable brother, and conflict will arise between you and your brother in Christ, don't expect that as you associate with one another in a loving way throughout the week and on Sunday mornings that everything's going to be perfect and, and fine and dandy because one of you, at least one of you, is a sinner. 
and the other one's going to be hurt. You can count on that. And you're going to have one of two choices. You're going to make a choice to cut off your love, whatever that may be, emotion or feeling, or do what is right. Love. Period. Because Christ has loved you. But when you learn to love the unlovable, it's a matter of the heart. And you learn how to love the lovable well. So that when they, or when you, do something to hurt the other, that love is unchanged. Third, that doesn't mean that there's no need for reconciliation, but that love is unchanged. The third thing will happen if you learn to love the unlovable is that the day, if the, if the day ever comes when the world shows its true, true colors toward you because you love Jesus and the world abandons you and the world uh, uh, persecutes you, you will be thankful to the Lord that you are still in love with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I can tell you this, when the bullets begin to fly, I'm not going to ask if a brother or sister in Christ has been nice or that they believe everything that I believe about the second coming of Christ. I won't care. The saint lives in communion or loving community with the saints. Here's the last one and we're done. The saint loves because he belongs to God. You are God's child solely because he chose to place you, his love upon you. And it is in his love that you live and breathe and exist. We know love. We have love. We live out that love. Love in deed and in truth. Our dear Father, you have loved us as your own before and in spite of our sinful rebellion against you. You have loved us while we were yet sinners. You've loved us in our hostility toward you. Oh, dear Father, what manner of love is this? That we, your enemies, should be called the children of God. What manner of love is this? That you sent your Son to take on flesh and in perfect righteousness lay down his life for us. Father, your love is shed abroad in our hearts. And you have called us to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ with that same love that you have extended toward us. By your grace, may we walk in faithful obedience to love and righteousness, to love the unlovable, to love in deed and in truth, to love unwaveringly, to love unconditionally, to love others as you have loved us, in the name of your Son, who gave himself for us. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.